Episode 2 of If These Walls, 12488 Park Avenue, Windermere, Florida, also known as Big Papa's Pop Palace, is best paired with an icy cold Coca-Cola classic. For best enjoyment, mix three parts Coca-Cola with one part whipped cream vodka. Top with a scoop of cookies and cream ice cream and get that insulin pen ready. This podcast should also be enjoyed by listening to Backstreet's Back by the Backstreet Boys. Hey, Audrey. Hey, lady. Do you know where I think we went downhill as a society? Please tell me about it because I'm looking for answers, babe. I think it's when we stopped using the term rake and started using the term fuckboy. Because a rake is mysterious and still sounds like he could have some good qualities. But a fuckboy is not redeeming. Are you saying a rake as in the yard maintenance device like a lake with an r like a rick with some spice what's a rake incorrect you don't know what a rake is no i'm not as i'm not 50 like you oh well if you were born in the 1800s like i was um rake is parts parts of you parts of me rake is a fashionable or wealthy man of dissolute or promiscuous habits spelled the same r-a-k-e isn't that a Chad or a Cad? I'm sorry. Chad is a, the same thing in the 80s. Well, this joke was lost on you. <laughs> I don't know. I enjoyed myself. And that's, that's all that really matters these days. <laughs> I can't believe I had to educate you on what a rake is. That's all right. You know what? I'm here to learn. We're all here to learn. <laughs> and especially right now. Was that the joke you were going to tell me? Yeah, it was not good. What was the punchline? There was none. Was the whole thing dependent upon me knowing what a rake was? I just wanted to drag fuckboys, but okay. (laughs) See, that's funny. If that's the punchline. (laughs) I accept that. I needed that. Thank you. Hi, Audrey. How are you doing today? You know what? I'm grateful to be alive, but I'm not doing great. And you know what, Lainey? Yes, Audrey. Okay to say that sometimes. Absolutely. Yeah. Things have been pretty tough over the last few weeks. We're recording this on Monday, June 1st in the year 2020, which Barbara Walters has been warning us about for millennia. So we should have known it was going to be a big year. Um, There's been a lot going on in the news the past few days. um, And as residents of New York and Columbus, uh, we've been kind of at the epicenter of some of the activity that's been going on so um i feel like it would be inappropriate for us to not speak um on some of what's been happening right now um elena did you want to start out with some thoughts sure well okay in case you're uh listening in the way future so we're referring to the death of george floyd on may 25th hi this is just a brief insertion by elena from the future I should have said the murder of George Floyd by the police officer, Derek Chauvin. Now back to the story. By a Minnesota police officer and the three other officers who just watched and did nothing. Um, 
and the riots and protests that have sprung up in the last few days across the country. Um, and I agree. I think it would be irresponsible to record a history comedy podcast and not point out that history is indeed happening as we speak. Uh, it's not always fun history, uh, but it's important history that we need to acknowledge before we move on. Um, so if you know both of us, either of us, whatever, uh, we are, <laughs> we are two white women who can only speak from our own experiences. I don't, uh, want to pretend that I can speak for anyone else other than myself, but we are two women that are very much in support of the Black Lives Matter movement and two women that are very much against institutionalized brutality, specifically in this case uh, by police officers. And in the wake of these events, and as more um, communities are starting to come together to try and organize um, and create protests that really get to the heart of what's at stake right now, while trying to mitigate some of the damage being done by third parties who, at least as of right now, um, we're really trying to pin down exactly who's doing some of this uh, additional damage. But in the meantime, we know that there's a lot of people who want to support um, their communities, their friends, and certainly the black community specifically. Now these resources are becoming available by the minute. And since this is a podcast that is recorded in advance, we're going to post the most current resource links that we have available in this episode description. So be on the lookout and do some reading, y'all. You're not just on this earth to listen to everything. Thank you for your ear time, though. I do think that it is important to speak out uh, on whatever platform you choose. I think it's important to have sometimes very difficult and uncomfortable conversations with people. Um, but also sometimes it's important to realize that you can also stay, take a step back and educate yourself and learn and uh, listen to what other people need. This is the history podcast. We like learning, uh, obviously. And this is a good time to step back and use some resources and learn what you're talking about before you have conversations with people. It is also important to just listen. Uh, you don't even have to be that smart or educated to listen to people. You can just listen to them and uh, have empathy for people that are having a much different experience than you are. And be sure to take care of yourselves during this time. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily the traditional, I think, popularized um, stay home in a Snuggie for four days on end watching the Lord of the Rings series and then the extended director's cut edition while consuming your own 12-pack of White Claws. Do they sell them in 12-packs now? I bought a 15-pack the other day. Woohoo! Good for us. It's odd because they can't even. <laughs> Literally can't even. Um, but do take care of yourselves during this time. You need to find your friends, lean on your community, and make the time to care for yourselves. This is definitely a time to stand up for what you believe in, but know that you don't need to carry that anger with you while you're, say, brushing your teeth in the morning. Gums are sensitive, and you don't want them to bleed. But we do want to be on the lookout for gingivitis, so, you know, happy balance there. But find 15 minutes, 30 minutes, an hour in the day to do something that's just for you and let your brain take a breather for just a little bit and then get back at it, soldiers. I would add to that or be more specific with that. That includes social media. Um, it is okay for you to step away from posting for half a day. But what will I do? 
you can watch murder and true crime documentaries. Come on. The Epstein documentaries on Netflix now, by the way. I haven't watched it yet. Do you want to get mad at other things too? Cool. (laughs) I love getting mad at other things. I like to spread my anger around. Um, Incidentally, also linked to this, uh, the last week of, of what's happening in America, Anonymous has returned after a pretty much three and a half year silence. Um, They are already wreaking havoc, which is absolutely fantastic. But follow them on Twitter because it's just... uh, Getting some gems? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Well, they're they're threatening to do literally everything now to bring down Trump. And God, I hope that they can stand by their promises currently. So, Well, you can't really hold them to it. You don't have any names, but... He's also they currently are. cowering in a bunker. Anonymous. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that made me feel better. Well, hi, everybody. So hi. We wanted to make sure that we started with that because it is important to lead with it. It's an important topic. It's something that we care about. And we want to make sure that we're being active, responsible members of our community. And now on to the Tom fuckery that we promised to bring you each week. <laughs> Each week here on If These Walls, each one of us, Elena and myself, will present a location and educate the other on the happenings inside them walls. I'm so excited to not have to talk this time. I mean, (laughs) I'll talk, but you know what I mean? I can just sit my mango white claw and listen. It's great. I got a black cherry white claw, which is not the drink that I recommended um, for this. I really do. I have to say, though, that... I did some shopping around and kind of curated what my recommended drink was going to be. And I so heartily recommend it. If you didn't listen at the top of this cast where I very, very clearly stated what it was, I need you to go to your dollar store, your little, your little mom and pop store around the corner and pick up a vintage glass Coca-Cola bottle. And then I need you to take three parts of that Coca-Cola. I need you to put it in a glass with one part of whipped cream flavored vodka. Yes, it is important. And then I need you to top that with a dollop of cookies and cream ice cream. And then I need you to get your insulin shot and take care of yourself. Can I get the macros on that? Absolutely not. They don't count. Great. (laughs) (laughs) And you're going to need all that sugar and joy to get through the murky waters that we're about to go into down here in Windermere, Florida. But before we do, I do want to lay out a quick trigger warning. There will be references to um, sexual abuse and potential molestation. Uh, If that's something that you are particularly sensitive to, please be cautious of that. I'm not going to get too graphic here. It's not what this is about. Um, But it is on the horizon. So please do be aware of that. Hey, Lainey. Hey, Audrey. You got your cargo shorts and your flippy flaps on? Yes, I do. You like wearing Abercrombie and Fitch? Do I need to frost my tips? Oh, you got your puka shell necklace, girl? Yes. All right, great, because we're about to take a trip down to Big Papa's Pop Palace. Oh, boy. The address is 12488 Park Avenue in Windermere, Florida, zip code 34786. And if you're the visual type of person, oh, she's for sale. And oh, you can find her online. This is Big Papa's Pop Palace, the home of one Louis J. Perlman, the godfather of 90s pop music. Oh, shit. 
Let's talk a little bit about this house now, shall we? Because <laughs> you would assume somebody with that level of prestige would have quite the crib, pre-MTV crib. So here we go. Um, this exclusive home is in prestigious Windermere, Florida, located on the Butler Lake chain with spectacular views. It's just a slight 16,000 square feet of living space <laughs> within a private gated, com gated community. Now, please do be aware that several Orlando realtors, including uh, one Michael Nemec, who is currently listing the house, said that it, quote, needs a lot of work, looks dated, even though it was built in 1996. The 2.77 acre property has a large screened in pool with a nearby wet bar and adjoining sauna, a theater, six bedrooms and 11 bathrooms in the house and guest house and garage space for 10 cars. When visitors enter into a great room with high 10 karat gold plated ceilings and views of the lake surrounding cypress trees, they'll be confronted by two columns sporting the initials L and P. Louis J. Perlman was not always a rich man. Wait, I have a question. Hmm. Why do you need six bedrooms and 11 bathrooms? Sometimes when you really love carbs, <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> I think it's just something there, there's, there's a real sanctity in being able to A, own lots of land, and then also be able to do your most intimate things very separate from other folks. So even if you're like sharing a bedroom, you get your own little, get your own little place for your peeps and poops. I mean, I get that. How do you define okay. luxury? How many toilets makes you a rich woman? 10. I don't want to be greedy. All right. 11 is one too many. Though. Yeah, no, it is. And it's an odd number. I don't enjoy that very much. <laughs> uh, I love odd that. numbers. I forgot how <laughs> weird you are that you like even numbers. Louis <laughs> J. Perlman was a seemingly mild-mannered guy born in Flushing, New York in 1954. He was born to a Jewish dry cleaner owner named Hi and his wife, Rini. And they lived right across from the Flushing, New York airport, where he and his childhood friends, yes, Elena. Did his nanny used to work in a bridal shop? In Flushing, Queens? Yeah. Till she one, did until her, her boyfriend kicked her out of one of those crushing out. scenes. Yep. Great. What was she to do? Let's get back to the fucking story. Great. Sorry. <laughs> I'll stop. Shout out to Flushing, though. They also have great dim sum. Anyway, <laughs> Hi and Rini Perlman's home was across from the Flushing airport, where a young Lou spent his days watching the blimps come and go out of a hangar. Blimps would go on to become a great obsession in his life and the beginning of his rise and downfall. As you can imagine, there are a lot of ups and downs in the blimp industry. <laughs> Perlman grew into a socially awkward and pudgy adolescent, taking great pains to leverage to his classmates his one claim to fame. His first cousin was Art Garfunkel. Wait, shut up. Seriously? Yeah, absolutely. That was oh, where wow. he started to become really obsessed with the music industry and the power that fame and that specific kind of celebrity could bring because of that. Because there's no one... That, Hotter than Art Garfunkel? Yes. <laughs> I All right. All right. Sorry. I have a very good Art Garfunkel impression. Anyway. It was actually widely contested amongst his friends whether or not he was telling the truth because young Louis was 
a little um, predisposed to telling a tall tale, but it was at his bar mitzvah when Garfunkel was actually present that it was confirmed that it was perhaps the one true tall tale that he told. Oh, you know, he brought the, like the best gift. Oh, isn't his presence enough? Gotta get that cash, man. (laughs) From Art Garfunkel. And this at that time, okay, so this was 1954. So his bat mitzvah would have been 1966, 67. You are talking prime Art Garfunkel. That's when it was the coolest to know Art Garfunkel. (laughs) So in the late 70s, after graduating from Queens College with a degree in accounting, not music, not blimpery, accounting, Perlman formed Airship Enterprises based off his senior thesis project in which he said he could form this fantastic commercial blimp industry. His first endeavor with Airship Enterprises was the leasing of a commercial blimp to the popular clothing line, Jordache. Stop it. Which he leased before owning any blimps. He used the funds from Jordache to construct a blimp taken from parts from an older blimp, which he then painted in solid gold, which of course is not the best thing to throw up in the air. The blimp promptly crashed. The two parties sued each other, and seven years later, Perlman was awarded $2.5 million in damages on a blimp that he spent only $10,000 procuring. So he's one of those blimp con men that you hear so much about. Oh, absolutely. Him and the blimpy Subway sandwiches guy. (laughs) You ever had a blimpy sub? I have not. You know what it's not? A Subway sandwich. Is their spokesperson a better person than Jared Fogle? Aren't most people a better person than Jared Fogel? Yes. All right. Back to Lou Perlman. <laughs> Perlman used the funds from this lawsuit to start a new company. Sorry, I lost my place. <laughs> Edit that out. I was like, I was like so into so I was much. like, well, what is it? <laughs> Perlman then started a new company, Transcontinental Airlines taking it public and raised $3 million through investing with which he purchased a new blimp falsely claiming that he had a partnership with a renowned German blimp manufacturer. It was really just any old blimp, just a big old sack of air floating by. Now, after, after Perlman relocated to Florida in 1991, his company transcontinental airlines signed with MetLife and SeaWorld as clients for his blimps. However, Shortly after signing, three of the contracted aircrafts aircrafts crashed. I have an important question, and then I'll stop interrupting so much. Oh, absolutely. No, no, no. Go for it. I I live on this. Did the blimp crash because they tried to put a whale in it? They just wanted to get it to the moon backward. (laughs) But if we're not doing that, yeah. What else would you, how else would you advertise SeaWorld? Put a whale in a blimp. Lainey, what would be on your blimp? What am I advertising for? I guess yourself. Oh, God. Do you want time to think on that? Because I promise we'll come back to blimps. I'll come. I'll have an answer later. That's the thing you have to hang on, guys. We're going to get to the boy bands real quick, but it's all about the blimps. I love this so much. I had no idea there was a blimp connection and I'm so happy right now. Oh my God. You cannot forget about the blimps. Now, during all of these ups and downs in the blimp business, Perlman had become friends with the owner of what was effectively a shady penny stock operation. 
which was similar to the one depicted in The Wolf of Wall Street. So through this connection, Perlman was able to keep a personal stockpile of cash despite the closure of his businesses by selling off what remained of the shares. So in Orlando, by display of his own personal wealth and just his own word of mouth, Lou Perlman was viewed as one of the most successful entrepreneurs in the area. But he wanted more. Now, since aviation wasn't treating him so well, he was looking around to see what his next business venture might be. Settled into Florida, one of his most recent clients with his failed blimp company was a young band called New Kids on the Block. Perlman was a little bit taken aback by the fact that these young boys were able to purchase a blimp on their own. And when he looked into it, realized that the year prior, which I believe was 1990, New Kids on the Block brought in just shy of $400 million from merchandising concerts and ticket sales and CD sales and all the things you can sell with boy bands. I had most of it. I, there is a VHS tape that God, I hope my mom still has. Not that I have a VHS player, but it's a 30 minute tape. It's from when I think the album was called Hangin' Tough also. But it's mm-hmm. from when that album came out and it's like a couple music video, maybe three music videos total between uh, two, like bet- meshed in between like scenes of them on their tour bus and touring and live in concert and everything. My girlfriend, Sarah, and I watched it every sleepover we had at least a few times. And eventually it turned from actually loving it to just like, like ironically liking it because we hated it, but we secretly still kind of loved it but we would do the hanging tough dance every time we watched it. Cause it was the song that closed out the video and stop talking now. No. And that was the business back in the day. Listen, you do. If you are looking for someone to shame you, she's not here because this is real. This is me. And I'm exactly who I'm supposed to be. That was a Demi Lovato quote, but I also had VHSs. Backstreet boys did a partnership with Burger King and gave a little 45 minute video that got behind the scenes of their millennium tour. And that's, that's living the fantasy, babe. You feel like you know them. You see those interactions and that's, that's what you're buying there. Intimacy. So wanting to capitalize on this particular capital venture, Perlman felt that he could easily replicate the boy band formula and turn a profit using the raw talent for which Orlando had become a magnet. So he placed a classified ad for teen male vocalists in the Orlando Sentinel in 1991 under the company name Transcontinental Records. He began his search for the next big thing. And in 1992, he struck a gold. Lou Perlman found a 15-year-old A.J. McLean. He was an R&B singer and ventriloquist. Yes, I read that correctly. Along with Howie Durow, an 18-year-old bar mitzvah performer, and Nick Carter, a 13-year-old regular auditionee in the Orlando area and potential Mouseketeer. Dang. Just before he signed with Lou Perlman, Nick Carter was about to be a Mouseketeer, and his mother, being a rational human adult, told her 13-year-old, eh, you can pick. When did they find Kevin, the already 37-year-old man? First off, Kevin was always 40. That's how he got <laughs> daddy status. But after a few months with three boys, 20-year-old Kevin Richardson transitioned into the band from performing as a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle and Disney Prince Aladdin at Universal Studios. 
oh, it's real tough because he is absolutely not of any kind of Arabic or Middle Eastern descent, but his eyebrows are on point. Speaking of, there's a connection between our two episodes so far then because Mm -hmm. the guy that played Steve, DJ's boyfriend in Full House, Mm -hmm. was the original voice of Aladdin in the animated film. Also, not a man of any Middle Eastern descent. White boy. You know what's even worse about that is that the singing voice of Aladdin was Brad Kane, also not of Middle Eastern descent. We're talking about three ho pro- pro- high pro- ho profile, high profile <laughs> opportunities. They might be ho profile. <laughs> oh, I wish Kevin was. They're rakes. From that. <laughs> 20-year-old Kevin Richardson transitioned into the group. He called his cousin, 17-year-old Brian Littrell, who had been working at Long John Silver's and was still attending high school in his hometown of Lexington, Kentucky. And with the band assembled, Perlman officially registered Transcontinental Records, his management company, and soon-to-be Pop Music Factory. Holy. What's important about that last bit is that he placed the ad under the name Transcontinental Records, and then once he got a group together about a year and a half later, he's like, okay, I'll make this a thing. I was going to ask you that when he put the advertisement in the paper, did he already have a company, but he did not. No, he had Transcontinental Airlines, the blimpery. That was a blunder. Oh, I needed to think about alliteration way in advance. We're going to have fun with that. (laughs) (laughs) We progress here. But Transcontinental Records was the beginning of this empire that he created, which when you think about it, it's so Ozymandias of him to say everything is transcontinental. You really only went from Flushing to Florida. That's just, that's not even just one continent. That's a chunk of a continent. That's a little bit. Yeah, it's like, keyboard. it's like a day and a half drive. What do you try? Why would you drive when you had a blimp, babe? I feel like a blimp would take like five days. Don't they not go very fast? How fast does a blimp go? If you take it really high and then you crash it with the wind and just let it fall, but on a trajectory going south, how often does the wind come straight from the north down to the south? Isn't it called around the world in 80 days? Right. But like Santa, when he comes from the North Pole, isn't there like a wind assist? I thought wind can go north, south. Sure. It's not a science podcast, Audrey. Hashtag wind goes north, south. Hashtag Audrey Rush. <laughs> Someone please educate me on those things. Continue. Oh, With Transcontinental Records formed in 1993 through 1994, rehearsals were held in warehouses owned by Lou from his aviation days. These were unair conditioned blimp hangars, just a hop and a skip north of the Everglades. Florida. The Everglades. Empty unconditioned air hangar. The band ran choreography and vocal rehearsals 10 plus hours a day and earned $75 a week. Okay, so Nick is 13 at this point. You're telling me his 13. mother is dropping him off at an unconditioned blimp warehouse to learn dance moves choreographed by a, how old is he now? He's in his 40s, right? Oh, no, no. He wasn't the choreographer. He hired people to do stuff. Okay, Big but Papa, he's still, Big he's Papa still, hires people. He's still a creepy blimp man. But that was part of the appeal, and we'll get into it in just a minute. There is a certain allure to Lou Pearlman that even after everything went down, and we'll get to when things go down, a lot of people have a strange affinity and sympathy for him. And we'll get there in just a second. So, 
10 plus hours a day, exhausting heat, children, $75 per week. Great business plan. For the first year, these rehearsals were not for any book performances. They were just experiments. 52 weeks, six days a week, dancing and singing until they created what was deemed a marketable sound and looked. I don't know why I threw a T on the end of that. Marketable sound and look. Kevin Richards said Lou pooled every resource into making this band and he insisted on being called Big Papa and made himself a father figure. Now this is where it all comes in. Nothing about Lou Pearlman ever screamed that anything was, you know, slimy or typical. Yeah, boys, there was no cigar smoking. There was nothing that would be like an entertainment industry. You should look out for this guy. He wanted to be called Big Papa. He actively looked to make sure that these boys were dependent on him. Kevin had just lost his father to cancer and Lou particularly leaned into him, even asking him to just call him dad. When Kevin was asked about this later, he said, the guy allowed me to quit my two jobs and pursue my dreams and I'm grateful for that. And as a reward for all their hard work in the hangar, they were invited to spend their downtime at Pearlman's early residence which is kind of foreshadowing of what the new place is going to be because he's going to build this 1996 abode with the money that they make him. Of course. To quote Howie Durow, it was always an adventure at Lou's. Lou Pearlman lived in a home decked with an arcade room, an old-fashioned Coke machine with your little glass bottles, which I hope you all are enjoying at home with your cookies and cream, ice cream, and whipped cream vodka. And at that point with his riches, he purchased the original Darth Vader mask. What teenage boy doesn't love that? The original Darth Vader mask. From which movie? You From know, A New Hope? Okay. What? Is that the first one? Well, it's episode four, but it's the first one, yes. Is it not the same across those four, five, six? It's the same costume, but does did they use the same costume in every movie? I think that's a question for another episode that's about that specifically. How dare you try and fact check these I'm going to do an episode things. on a Star War. That's good. (laughs) Location, Death Star. (laughs) Inside his residence, the teenagers would dine on pizza, ice cream, soda, and popcorn while playing video games and having Nerf battles with, quote, Big Papa. And, quote Howie Durow, at the end of the night, we'd all put on one of Lou's porns and we'd all watch that. First time I ever saw two girls kissing was on one of Lou's tapes. (sighs) Ah, boy. Reminder, Kevin is 20, and the youngest person in the group is 13 years old. He's the only one above 18, right? Howie was just 18. Okay. And this all ties into Perlman's psychological manipulations. He had these five boys isolated, working hard. They were completely financially dependent on him. And he would just spoil them with these observations, with these moments of, look what I can do for you. Look what you can have. And it's very child-friendly things for the most part. It's pizza and ice cream and Nerf gun battles. Stuff that makes you look cool. Stuff that makes you look cool. If you were the kid from Blank Check who got a blank check and built a mansion with like water slides in it. But then just that one bit of something that's not right. Yeah, call me daddy. Yeah. And (laughs) And the Backstreet Boys at that time, they didn't have great family and monetary backgrounds. 
Oh, I would uh, assume that that's a given. Yeah, no, no, no. Howie Duro came out and said with the first bit of money he made, he bought um, his parents' air conditioning. They had lived in South Florida in a home with uh, seven individuals with no air conditioning his whole life. Um, and he had an anecdote about killing pet rabbits for food. Nick came from a very unstable household that was constantly scraping for money. And that's how he got into the industry. They started having him sing and dance at age six to get money for the whole household. So this is the kind of background that they're coming from. So if you have this big Papa guy, it's essentially like porn Santa. Oh my God. I love porn Santa. So friendly. So friendly. So overreaching. Catches that that (laughs) North South wind from the North pole and brings you all your porn dreams. Bring the blimps all down the Eastern seaboard. (laughs) All right. Think about when you think about what you want on your blimp, think about like a porn blimp. Circle back. Circle back to it. Okay. Circle back. All right. So in 1994, the formula had been pretty much set for what the Backstreet Boys were going to be. Perlman went out and hired Johnny and Donna Wright, who were new kids on the blocks, road managers. And he began doing bus tours of high schools, unpaid for, for these boys still. They got in a literal school bus and would go across America to high schools and were trained to sing a cappella at the drop of a hat whenever they saw clusters of girls in places. So they would do like high school assemblies, but also drive by a Burger King. And it's like, hey, there's a group of, you know, 13 year olds. That looks like a Delia's catalog. Go sing at them. (laughs) And just trying to see what kind of reaction they would get. And if the girls reacted, Johnny and Donna Wright would sweep in with what merchandise they had on hand, which was just stickers, photos, things that they had made and sell them for whatever cash the girls had. That was how they were paying for gas. That was how they were recouping some of those losses. Wow. In 1995, the band signed with Jive Records. Rest in peace, Jive Records. You know all the albums that you had, 1995 to like 2002. That's Britney Spears. That's Christina Aguilera. Mm -hmm. That was the company. And this was really where they started to hit it big. Now, Jive signed them, but U.S. Radio was still really into grunge and Snoop Dogg. This was like Nirvana time. So Johnny and Donna Wright told them to get over to Europe, which they did. Their success in Europe recouped every penny that Perlman invested and then some. Their album, The Backstreet Boys, sold 14 million records in the first year alone. Wow. Combined with merchandising, the two-a-day concert schedule they were put on, and live appearances, the Backstreet Boys brand brought in over $290 million in their first year abroad. And of this $295 million... Perlman collected both as manager, producer, and in addition to that, uh, he claimed there were deductions to recoup losses for the training for training of the band and to cover typical manager's fees, which included every slice of pizza, every bottle of Coke, anything that they enjoyed at Big Papa's house. At the end of the day, the Backstreet Boys as a group were paid $1.8 million total. And the piece de resistance. The cracked black pepper on the Caesar salad of bullshit. Oh, yum. Perlman was also paid as a six member of the Backstreet Boys. Wait, stop. Why? How? Rationalize it. It's technically illegal. Yeah. And by technically, they did sue for it. So when you break it down, the five members of the band... Split $1.5 million, $300,000 a piece, after they had 
brought in $295 million. They received 0.1% of the profit. I'm literally speechless. I know, right? Wow. <laughs> Did it, was, is there something that made him, what made him be able to claim that he was a sixth member? Did he add like backing vocals or instruments or? It was just how the contract was written. That was such a big thing for him is he loved doing these lengthy contracts, but when he would bring people in for any conversation, his persona was so much of a big papa. That's why he kept calling himself. It's I'm going to take care of you. Everything's fine. You don't need to read that. And he got people who were in these positions where they were looking for a way out, a savior. There was something that they needed. And he gave them a shiny opportunity and said, Hey, don't worry about it. You know, yeah, you're working hard, but I'm going to treat you to a steak dinner and I'm going to make sure your kid has somewhere to sleep at night. And I'm going to make sure that you guys become the next big thing. And then you see over the course of those couple of years that, yeah, they're getting successful. This is working. He's made a band. And it's not until you get that paycheck that you realize, wait, what did we sign? Now it is illegal under federal law to be paid as both a manager and a group member in that situation. That's entertainment law. Now or... Was it that- was at the time as well. Oh, it was. Okay. Yes. And it is going to come up later and it's going to help them quite a bit. Okay. Continue. Oh, oh. I'm so excited. <laughs> so this payday was the biggest Perlman had ever received from a single venture. Gadur. And with his fat stacks of cash, Perlman bought a lot in the prestigious neighborhood of Windermere, Florida and began construction on 12488 Park Avenue. This property was a stone's throw from estates belonging to Shaquille O'Neal and Tiger Woods. Described as being, quote, like a post-pubescent Neverland ranch. The house was appointed to appeal to a late teen boy with a oh, life- Oh my God, there's so much wrong there. Get ready. There was a life-size Star Wars stormtrooper standing guard in the foyer and a pimped out game room was the residence's focal point. Like the blank check house. <laughs> this is entirely a child's idea of wealth. There are spas and bigger theaters and the gold-painted ceilings and indoor-outdoor pools and, most notably, six bedrooms, a sweeping master suite for Perlman, and one bedroom for each member of Perlman's next cash cow in sync. <gasps> and they each had one point... Hang on, I'll give you the One point eight five bathrooms each did you just math that hard did your arm just go up because you were doing math on the wall yeah it's still wrong but (laughs) wait (laughs) i need to science they had 1.89 bathrooms actually i feel like that's close it's gotta be close i don't (laughs) have it's not a full two it's not a full twosies but like it's real close (laughs) continue You see, as soon as the Backstreet Boys went overseas, Perlman recognized three things. One, he gonna make money. Two, as soon as the other producers caught wind, there would be competition. And three, no one knew how to make that competition better than he did. Mm. And while 10 hours of practice a day and a pinch of psychological manipulation built the Backstreet Boys in a year and a half, Perlman decided that with 24 hours a day of total control, billed as full immersions to the band's family members, Perlman could make a rival band even more in sync, pun absolutely intended, in much less time. 
Oh my God. He's made his own boy factory. Uh Uh-huh. The legacy begins. (laughs) Incidentally, it's 1.83 bathrooms per person. And I said 1.85. So quite honestly, I'm a genius. I would like my blimp to say math genius on it. Okay. Well, if we were on the prices right, your little yodeler would go over the mountain and go, you. No, I was close. You went over. I went over. I went over. Motherfucker. Sorry about your math genius blimp. That can crash too. Say and neuter your cats. And so the staged rivalry was set. Any gigs the Backstreet Boys did not take were given to NSYNC. You're so mad, right? (laughs) Kevin Richardson of the Backstreet Boys recalled first learning of the other band's existence when he requested a break from touring while in Germany. He was sick. Perlman responded by showing Richardson the demo video he had recently created for NSYNC and asked Richardson, hey, what do you think about this? What? What a psycho. Psycho. So after learning that their own management had created immediate competition, the Backstreet Boys and their families began to question more and more the terms of their relationship with Perlman. The family of band member Brian Littrell hired a lawyer to investigate what the hell was up with the check that their son received, leading ultimately to the band suing Transcontinental Records for fi- and filing for termination of their contract. Okay. Now, the contract was terminated due to the loophole that they found of you cannot be a member of this band. It registered the, the existing contract null and void. Excellent. It's a good attorney right there. Yeah. Um, their contract was terminated under new new management, which was easy to find as the band hit U.S. airwaves in 1997 and was an immediate success. Did you see the Quit Playing Games With My Heart music video? I did. And you're right. It was totally post-grunge America then. Just let, you tired of Nirvana? Here's some beefcake. We got it damp for you. That's. Well, it was, yeah. Three years after Nirvana lo- no longer existed. So. Yep. The Backstreet Boys eventually bought themselves free of Perlman after the sale of their Millennium album for $27 million. What year was that? That was in 1999. Millennium came out. Okay. Okay. Essentially what happened was they had terminated their contract, but Perlman claimed some ownership of the Backstreet Boys name. So when they settled with the original judge, he was set to continue to receive a much smaller percentage of profit on whatever they did in perpetuity with the Backstreet Boys name. So by the time they got to Millennium with the money they received, they came together as a group with their own personal, this wasn't the brand, this was the five guys got together and said, we will give you $27 million if you just go away. And he Uh, did. Now in a classic tale of same script, different cast, NSYNC was not far behind the Backstreet Boys in taking Perlman to court. According to Lance Bass, during the early years of NSYNC's existence, their only compensation was a $35 per diem. After having a number one album and three years of touring, Bass describes a pivotal moment in late 1998 when the group was finally going to receive its first payment. Jesus. We were all trying to guess what it would be because we knew how much merch and how many records and how many tours we sold. The band expected something in the millions. Instead, the check read $10,000. What? Which Bass promptly tore up. 
<gasps> Good for In- him. I know, right? InSync broke free from Transcontinental's clutches the following year, taking advantage of a contractual loophole to sign with Jive Records. So would you say at that point there were no strings attached? That's why that album's called that. I love that metaphor for them. Love that. Love that journey for them. Also, Backstreet Boys' Black and Blue album is a reference to cutting ties with with Pearlman. Wow. And coming out of it, Black and Blue. Oh, shit. Yeah. Other names managed by Perlman include O-Town, created mm-hmm. during the ABC MTV reality television series Making the Band, LFO, Take 5, Natural, and US 5, not to be confused with British 5, who slam-dunked the funk, as well as one girl group, Innocence, spelled in the most obnoxious way. Who spell it for me? Oh, I-N-N-O- S E N S E. Originally, Britney Spears was a member of the band. <gasps> what? Co managed by Justin Timberlake's mother, who then told Britney, Honey, you're better than this. And Britney got out. God love her. I know. Um, other artists on Transcontinental's labels included Aaron Carter, the younger brother of Nick Carter, and. Oh right? And Jordan Knight of New Kids on the Block. I do love Jordan Knight's solo work, I will say. Aaron Carter is the 2020 of human beings. Just a literal fucking dumpster fire. If you go into and watch, uh, one of my sources for this is there is I Love Me a Documentary, and it's a good documentary, and it's for free on YouTube right now, The Boy Band Con, Lou Perlman. Okay. Um, one of the We'll put a link in there. Oh, absolutely. Um, one of the speakers, including like Lance Bass, AJ McLean speaks on it. They get the LFO members um, and a lot of people that are coming up soon. Um, but Aaron Carter is a very much lost person right now. What it would seem. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's pretty hard to watch him during this documentary. Yeah. And he's a lot of a, it seems to tie back to this. He's had a rough go of it. He indeed has. So all of the cases, um, all of these musical acts that worked with Perlman, all but one of them have sued him in federal court for misrepresentation and fraud. Was Innocence the one that didn't sue him? I, no, that because, can't be the case. Because it I didn't did. make any sense. Get the fuck out. <laughs> now, all the cases against Perlman either have been won by those who brought the lawsuits or have been settled out of court. Okay. That's the monetary legal side of things. In a 2009 interview with Howard Stern, Rich Cronin, the former lead singer of the band LFO, said that he only received a fraction of the money owed to him from record sales and claimed that Perlman, quote, wanted to bang everyone and had attempted to seduce him multiple times. Cronin also alleged that those who did not oblige Perlman were not looked after. Now, throughout the community of Windermere, Florida, and even at the offices of Transcontinental Records, which at that time had taken off and become a known fixture in town. But rumors spread, rumors ran rampant of Perlman's predilection for the decidedly buff blonde boys he selected for his entourage. Is it buff blonde boys that resemble a bowl of ramen noodles? 
Uh, I mean, yeah, that was, that was, as was the style of the time. Great. Not great. Not great. great. Not great. Now, during this time, Perlman had a girlfriend named Tammy Hilton. However, Hilton has publicly stated that in their 10 years together, the relationship was never consummated. Perlman citing that he was very religious. Really ties in with the, with the porn showings with the teenage kids. InSync member Lance Bass said that in a 2014 interview with Vanity Fair that he was warned by staff to keep his distance. He also said of Perlman, he would always have a young boy limo driver for Transcontinental Records. Those limo drivers would always be put into different boy bands. Then I'd hear rumors that he would molest the boys before they would even get into the groups. I don't know how much of it is true, but where there's smoke, there's fire. Oh. These allegations were the focus of a 2007 Vanity Fair expose, Mad About the Boys. In the article, a high-ranking former transcontinental staffer who asked to remain anonymous for legal purposes recalled an incident from 2000 involving Ikaika Kahano, a finalist on Making the Band. I had such a crush on Ikaika, that's not relevant (laughs) right now, but he was super cool. Uh, Quote, Lou picked him as the chosen one to live in his house. He said, I'll be like a father to you, you and me against the world. We have a secret. I'll take care of you. You'll be my guy. In time, Kahano grew visibly uncomfortable in Perlman's presence and, quote, completely freaked out whenever Lou tried to touch him. Kahano's brother flew in from Hawaii soon after this and never left his side, a fact that didn't make it onto the air. Kahano, who declined to comment for the story to Vanity Fair, abruptly quit the show and the band O-Town mid-season. Holy shit. Do you remember what I told you at the top of this story, Lainey? Blimps. Don't forget about the blimps. They're coming back. They never left, baby. Oh, boy. (laughs) All the while, all the whole time, the whole time, the whole time, Perlman was quietly convincing would-be investors and Florida retirees to get in on the ground floor of a flourishing fleet of planes and blimps. What is with this guy in the blimps? In reality... The jumbo jets pictured on the transcontinental airlines brochure given to these retirees was a toy airplane from his dresser held in perspective against an empty field. Stop that. He stopped that. Transcontinental records and the clout Perlman had acquired from the the success of its artists became the cornerstone of Perlman's Ponzi scheme of 84 businesses. Holy shit! Varying degrees of legitimacy in which investors contributed to the company's employee investment savings accounts. Every dollar went directly to Perlman. And by 2006, Perlman had defrauded over 1,700 families of an estimated $500 million. Was the blimp just a 42-gallon trash bag tied to a Easter basket? No, that was Perlman. Oh. The blimp was a blimp. <laughs> the blimp was a blimp. The plane was a toy. And, and trash Perlman was a man. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. 
Ready to start feeling better about some all of this? I, I sure hope so. <laughs> In 2007, Perlman was arrested. Hell for yeah. One of, for what is one of the biggest Ponzi schemes in American history. Five days before his May 2008 sentencing, Perlman issued a formal request to be permitted to develop bands while, de- while behind bars. He stated all he would require was a telephone and an internet connection two days a week. Yes. I, I have so, I can't. Go ahead. The comments I have are completely inappropriate. And <laughs> Go ahead. The judge, Kendall Sharp, denied his claim and ordered Perlman to 300 months in jail. One month per $1 million that he admitted to stealing with the stipulation that his sentence could be reduced one month per $1 million he repaid. Okay. Now, once Perlman was in prison, the bank went to work stripping 12488 Park Avenue of its trappings in an attempt to collect on some of the over $300 million that Perlman owed his victims. And I just find it funny that they note that upstairs there was a five-foot-tall safe with a sticker on it depicting the barrel of a revolver and a warner that, warning that trespassers will be prosecuted next to his bed in his bedroom. Was it like a was it like a model house where like the the life size stormtrooper in the living room was actually just like made of cardboard but no one noticed until they went to strip it? That's what I picture right now. Like that it's, it's not, all fake. Yeah, it's, it's that. T- what is it? Oh oh oh! What's the movie? What's the movie where they roll through the town and then they they build a cardboard fake town? So when the bad guys come through, is it is it Rango? Is it no? It's not Rango. There's some movie where it's the Wild West and there's, oh, Elena. Someone that's that's listening is yelling it right now, but I don't know what it is. I don't watch movies. Uh, Something about Liberty Valance. Okay. It's not the man who shot Liberty Valance. Okay. Of the items that were sold from the house. This included platinum records, a baby grand piano, Cadillac styled golf carts, Boxing gloves autographed by Jake LaMotta, Jimmy Ellis, and Joe Frazier. And my personal favorite, a life-size statue of Anakin Skywalker. Not Darth Vader. Leo boy Anakin Skywalker. Because you'll recall... At the- as a little boy or as Hayden Christensen? As a little boy. Oh, that's, that's, that's messed up. But he was a little boy that liked to go in planes. He liked to go fast. But you know, okay. I just want to make sure that you have your Star Wars knowledge straight. It's right Anakin. It's 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 set in Anakin Skywalker. Okay. Yeah, but Anakin Skywalker was played by a little boy in the Phantom Menace. In the other movies, he was played by grown man Hayden Christensen. When did grown man Hayden Christensen Star Wars come out? Uh, like two thousand, two thousand one. Nay, I say to thee. No, yeah. really? Yeah. I mean, I feel and- like 2001 was, nope, 2000 was when the first one came out. When did Jar Jar Binks become a thing in Taco Bell? 99, 2000. Okay. Um, to be fair, I pretend episodes one, two, and three don't exist. Okay. So Christensen started playing him in 2002 in Attack of the Clones and played him again in Revenge of the Sith. And then the guy who played him as old Anakin, as Darth Vader, when he died, was it's James Earl Jones. Internet. That's his voice, not his 
he's played by an old white guy. He's played by a potato. I saw the movie. You seen the movie? Yeah. He takes off his little harmonica hat and he's a little potato. It's all burnt around the edges. That's true. That is an accurate depiction. Oh my anyway. God, internet, you suck. Go ahead. The internet does suck. So anyway, it was absolutely little boy Anakin Skywalker. So Perlman goes to jail in 2008. In 2014, Perlman agreed to an interview with Billboard magazine from prison. Journalist Seth Abramovitz asked Perlman why he was any different from fellow infamous con artists like Bernie Madoff. To which Perlman said, he didn't have any real way to make money, but I had the music. The Backstreet Boys each made me well over $50 million a piece. I, of course, got my piece. It was very substantial and very nice. Which is, I hate how he talks. Oh, that's about, oh, I feel like that's a reference to things other than money. Mm-hmm. Ugh. Roman went on to say that each of the boys themselves made over $50 million a piece while working with him. However... Abramowitz followed the quote with a source confirmation that the band members never received more than $300,000 while working with Perlman. Wow. While filming their Tell All 2015 documentary, Show Them What You're Made Of, which I highly recommend, the Backstreet Boys walk through the empty property at 12488 Park Avenue. It had been up for sale and was abandoned. It is gutted down to the carpet. There are stray cats living inside. It is beyond gray gardens. Wow. But you can still see just like the bones of the structure and the traces of the original design. There's arched doorways and these long meandering hallways and this enormous double staircase with wrought iron detail in the middle of the main living room. And uh, you can still see flecks of gold on the ceiling from what was there. And it's so uncomfortable to watch because this, so this was a 2015 documentary. The Backstreet Boys are quite successful. They are grown, married with children, millionaires. And to watch them just kind of like recede into themselves when they're in this space. Oh, that's heartbreaking. Yeah. It, it's a lot. They spend time in the documentary going to each of their um, hometowns and seeing where they're from. And then they go to that space and it's, it is imprinted on them as it is in sync. Well, yeah, I think that, I mean, quite frankly, that's part of the reason I wanted to start this podcast too, is the way that like buildings can imprint on us and like the way that they, I don't know, like your memories can take place in these buildings in which things happen to you, especially mm-hmm. if it happened during your formative years. Yeah. And it was, I mean, talk about formative. He completely controlled their lives. For Nick, for Nick Carter. And then you think about Aaron Carter. He got Aaron Carter even younger. So when you look at, and in the documentary, um, Aaron Carter did take Lou Pearlman to court um, for fraud. Um, But when it gets to the point where people are talking about the sexual abuse allegations, and there's more they go into in the documentary, where particularly one of the representative, one of the members of Innocence, the girl group, um, was saying in their time at the house, um, Perlman started to install cameras in rooms um, and into the tanning room and would offer to his male guests that he could show them video of the girl group tanning. Yeah. Anytime this comes up and Aaron Carter is brought on, he completely flips out. Ooh. Like emotionally, he's like, no one should ever attack him. This is so wrong. And it's just this 
he pulls off his mic and takes a break. And he's like, it's unacceptable that people are saying this and he would never, but all the while he's saying that he's such a good guy, but you also took him to court and he took all this money from you. Yeah. What the hell? Yeah. The Carter family is a rough bunch. Let's just say. Yeah. We're going to have to blame the parents a little on that one too. Yeah. But it, it, it gave him a scrappy upbringing and that's how he beat Shaq. So there was a good side to it. Uh, did he, did Perlman ever face any consequences uh, legally from the abuse or was it all? allegations didn't come out until after he was already in prison. So if anything okay. was substantial was being put together, I mean, that interview with uh, Howard Stern was 2009. Oh, wow. um, Vanity Fair started doing the expose in, in 07 and that was after he had already made headlines for defrauding. It's, it's so devastating, the documentary, when they talk to these retirees, because that's the other half of it, is there's the glamorous kind of like, oh, these boy bands, but then there's just this very real of, he had hundreds of millions of dollars from the entertainment industry and still went to Florida retirees and took yeah. their last bits of savings. What is the... Wow. I'm speechless on that part. Yeah. So he, so he truly just, he liked conning to con. It's yeah. not even that he needed more money or that. And he, it was never enough. There, there was so much when they go into descriptors about who he is as a person and it reflected itself in the house that they were in as well. It was just everything to excess and everything to kind of show off and say, Hey guys, my cousin's art Garfunkel. Do you know how cool I am? <laughs> <sighs> It continued on into prison too. When he got into prison, he made a big deal about how he was, he got along with the, the white collar criminals and the executive types. And he, oh God, where do you, where do you say it? I didn't take that quote because I didn't like it, but he, he refers to other inmates as criminals, which duh. <laughs> You're in a high scary prison. Yes. Uh, also um, overlooking yourself who right, right, right but he became the head of the department that screened movies and he helped organize the prison's christmas choir for two years he was and this is the wrap-up this is coming to its very end oh he was permitted the use of an mp3 player and was able to download published music so he was able to stay up to date with current music and told billboard magazine in the 2014 interview i know if i was out there We'd give One Direction a hell of a run for their money. Oh, God. And then went on to reminisce about his friendly rivalry, air quotes for all of those listening who don't have eyes on this because that was dumb of me to put up air quotes. Friendly rivalry in the 1990s with producer Simon Cowell. The spokesperson went to Cowell, asked him about Perlman, and Simon said, I hardly know him. We were introduced once. We're not friends. In his last public statement in his own defense, Lou Pearlman said, I had my way to make it all right. I just didn't have a chance to do it. Pearlman died of a heart attack in 2016 in prison. Oh, wow. Show him what you're made of! The, <laughs> it's the Backstreet Boys song. His, I mean, not to... Not to obviously, I, I enjoy Backstreet Boys and sing quite a bit. His, those words that you just said, his quote... They sound like terrible lyrics from a poppy voice, like a boy pop band. I had my way to make it all right. I just didn't have my chance to do it. Well, exactly. he, was the, he was the sixth member of both bands. You have to remember the music's <laughs> in him. His cousins are Garfunkel. Oh, man. Yeah, right? That was heavy. How much and you want to unpack? 
Um, uh, how old was he when he died? Uh, 50. Go on to something else. I'm doing the math. And or he I was, just pulled the Wikipedia. <laughs> and he was incredibly unhealthy his whole life. Correct? Incredibly unhealthy. Okay. He suffered a stroke and a heart attack um, three years prior to his death in prison. Wow. And it's very much attributed to his lifestyle. He was, he was a, a robust individual. I mean, he, he just didn't look healthy I and mean, he never was. And he loved food. That was his addiction. He never got into alcohol. He never got into drugs. So when you're going back and saying, you know, how did all these parents trust their teenage boys with this guy? Everything about him on the external seemed not only wholesome, but like, heck yeah, Santa Claus, make our life better. Thanks for the bottled Coca-Cola. Like he didn't keep alcohol on the premises. It was just got to a point of like, okay, the parents are gone and multiple groups attested to a, you know, I watched my first porn with Lou Pearlman on a tape he showed me. Oh. Which, and that even goes into, I think, a deeper psychological thing of, is this a power thing? Is it sexually intended? Is he just trying to be cool to these teenage boys and say, I have something you like? Is he... I mean, the girlfriend was a front. Yeah. And Lance Bass talks about that a little bit. There was, I, I read a little bit more into one of the Vanity Fair articles. Lance Bass is very open about all of this and his mother's part of it. They're both in the two different I love Lance about. Bass. <laughs> I know. He's great. I, I mean, I got it. Do you think he was uh, ashamed of his sexuality and that's what led to? That's what to say his issues? name again, Lance Bass assumes. <laughs> Is he he even said that he knew as a closeted individual that um, something was different about Lou and he just was under the assumption that he was harboring a secret. So he felt some kind of like sympathy or empathy. And he he said it kind of led to him brushing off whenever there's so many accounts of, oh, you know, Lou would give massages and say, I'll give you a muscle pump before you go on stage and like, just let me like rub on you a little bit. Which that dances that line of, are you just really creepy and do not know where these lines are? How much can be misconstrued? It gets real sticky. And it doesn't help that like he's a known compulsive liar and is stealing from people. So you distrust him automatically. Never trust a blimp salesman. Can't. Is my takeaway from this. Full of hot air. Oh my God. Help. I got through that whole thing without singing. You did. Don't do it now. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Well played. Thank you. I was very proud of that. That was very impressive. Thank you. I was, I was on the edge of my seat the whole story. Oh, good. Because I was concerned. So I'm like, this is a lot of legal stuff. <laughs> no, it was really interesting. It's, I mean, I, I guess I just knew him as a creepy individual who stole money from boy bands. I didn't realize how much the house played into it. Mm-hmm. That's the crazy part. It was all about control and shaping his own image. And yeah. it, 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 I, I told you this when I was doing the research is I had to cut so much. There's, I really recommend watching at least one or two documentaries about him and there's many oh i'm like, excited too yeah because of the scope of this there's some that lean more into just the legal side of things and the ponzi scheme and some that like dateline did one um there there's a few but the the free one on youtube is 
a lot of insight into the psychology of this person and how quickly he just flipped off. He stopped being Big Papa as soon as they questioned his authority. Wow. Oof. Well, we'll put the links to, we'll put, we'll reference the videos that you recommend and put the link to the YouTube one in I the did. description. Have, have them on the bottom of my little document here. <laughs> Whew. Well, if you're ready for a little bit of a palate cleanser, Elena, I have oh, a game for you. Okay. Okay. Uh, to anyone who listened into our last episode, I done embarrassed myself. Oh, boy, I got, I'm going to. I got a straight zero out of three correct um, for Elena's quiz, How Well Do You Know Your Sitcom Houses, which technically is a perfect score. Um, but I thought I would flip the script and just offer up the same game back to you, my, oh little, boy. my little linguine noodle. Okay. Elena, how well do you feel you know your sitcom houses? Oh, um, uh, we grew up in different times, so I'm not sure I know them very well. Go ahead. Sorry. Okay. First off, I'm offended that you think I would only know things that were like, I know your, re- your references, uh, transcend your age about me transcends. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I have three questions for you. Okay. Question number one. I wouldn't say they're altogether ooky, but this family resides at one Mockingbird Lane. The Adams family. That's incorrect, you dumb slut. Wait, the other one, the Munsters. It was the Munsters. What did I say? I said I wouldn't say they're altogether ooky. But can I say, oh, they're, oh my God. You got to listen. You got to listen. You embarrassed me and I'm going to return the favor. Thanks. You're welcome. Now that you know how this game is going to go. Yeah. <laughs> Not well Elena, for me. Nope. Yes, when you're living single in the city, sometimes you need to get friendly and share your space. Overton and Sinclair didn't mind. <laughs> what style of building was shared by the cast of Living Single and where was it? Oh, fuck off. A brownstone in New York City. I'm gonna give you halvesies for that. It's a brownstone in Brooklyn. Damn it! Good for you. I knew it was New York somewhere. I guess I didn't realize it was Brooklyn. I'm glad you enjoyed the journey that was that question, though. I enjoyed writing it. (laughs) I think I had a a fish named Overton when I was little because I loved that name. I think that uh, the way you craft your questions is going to be much more entertaining than my answers to the questions. No. Final question. (laughs) Don Knotts might say, how you doing? As you head to the Parker residence at the end of Main Street, which is really just the beginning of Main Street, in which town? Oh, for fuck's sake. Oh, I know this, and I don't know it because I know because I know the Andy Griffith show well. I know it because of Scooby Doo, the animated movies. Okay, the town. Ah, oh, god damn it! Knott's Berry Farm. 
she wins. <laughs> no, what is it? Oh, I'm gonna, okay, just tell me. I'm so mad. Can I tell you the wrong answer that you are going for? Yes. The town you're looking for is Mayberry. Mayberry. God damn it. But that's not the answer. Oh, fuck. The town is Pleasantville Ugh. of the fictional sitcom from the movie Pleasantville. That was a trick question and you know it. Where do the stairs lead in the Tanner household? You take your trick questions and you put them in a Pringles can and you shake them up real hard and you spray them in someone's face like a can of fake snakes and I don't know where this is going, but you suck on it, Elena. Fair enough. You were the trick question. There's a trick question. I even gave you Don Knotts. I gave you hints. But that just made me think of Mayberry. How? Uh, to be fair, he was also on Three's Company. So. Well, I know that. Okay. Well, did you guess that? No. Who are the Parkers in the Andy Griffith show? The, the people that own the. That's Gomer Pyle. Town. Nope. Square. Nope. That's not how that works. Great. All right. <laughs> In what American city did family ties take place? All right, hold on. I confuse family ties and family matters, so give me a second. Family ties is the Keatons, right? Yes. Oh, Fairfield, Connecticut. Columbus, Ohio, motherfucker! Oh, really? Yeah. Didn't something in Back to the Future also happen in Columbus, Ohio? I don't know. I feel like Michael J. Fox is intrinsically tied to the Midwest. I would say that's an accurate statement. Yeah. God bless him. Who doesn't love Michael J. Fox? I love Michael J. Fox. I love Michael J. Fox. All right. Elena, this was a solid episode, man. Solid. I'm in a better mood. Me too. Yeah. I really am. You got any closing thoughts for people before we say bye? Um, Listen Give a little teaser about where we're going next week. Look, listen. Next week, we're going to our nation's capital where Mm. uh, we're going to talk about corruption and an impeached president. And no, I am not talking about Donald J. Trump. Let's talk about James K. Polk next week. If these balls. Hey, Elena. Hey, Audrey. I'll see you next time. Don't let the door hit you on the way out. Oh, 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 oh,